This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all-music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. We'd like to welcome back David Cantwell, who spoke with us in 2019 about his book, Merle Haggard, The Running Kind. That's an episode you can also go back and listen to. David has updated his book and has just re-released a brand new version that's called The Running Kind, Listening to Merle Haggard. Welcome back, David. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, and Merle Haggard is still, uh, you know, relevant, which is, is what we'll talk about. But tell us about, you know, just so people don't get confused. It is a slightly different title. It's mostly the same book, just with some updates. Is that right? Um, I would push that a little harder and say that it's not just retitled and not even just updated, but that it's significantly expanded throughout. It's I think of it as almost a different book. That's what they told me when I turned it in. They said, oh, this is like a new book. The first time when the book came out, originally in 2013, it was part of the American Music Series out of the University of Texas Press. And those were very uniform titles early on in the series, and they all had a very tight 75,000 word count. And that was a rough one for me because, I mean, other people in the in the series before me had written books on Dwight Yoakam. That was by Don McLeese. One on Ryan Adams by David Minconi. And those are much tighter, smaller careers. And Merle had been out for a half century of making records by the time my book came out. So I had to make choices and I had to couldn't include everything. And so almost from the beginning, I was every year around Merle's birthday on April 6th which eventually became his death day as well. I would write my editor, Casey Cottrell at Texas, and say, you know, if you can, ever, if we can ever expand that, I felt like I left out so much the first time around. Uh, there's so many things I would like to include. And plus, Merle just kept putting out albums in the last years of his life as well. And so eventually, to my surprise, uh, Casey said, you know, let's do it. What, what would you put in? And so the new version of the book is not only significantly longer, it's in hardback. It has an index. It has a, a bibliography. Uh, but the real big additions are that every chapter but the first five are significantly longer. There are, in addition to that, five new chapters. Wow. I was able to add stuff that hadn't even happened yet when I wrote the book the first time. And then I was also able to expand on stuff that I had given short shrift the first time around for space reasons. Well, I will have to go back and read it as I thought it was an updated version. And I, I love this book and I learned a ton about listening to Merle Haggard, who will talk about how influential he was. But your book was published before Merle's death, correct? The first one? Yeah, 2013. And he died in 2016. Right. So you cover Haggard's death and his afterlife as an icon of both old school and modern country music. And although it's always been a broad genre, country music continues to rapidly change. So I'm curious how country music and new country musicians, if their take on Merle has changed at all. Yeah, I'm, uh, I don't know how, 
how to put this? I would say, you know, like the most important uh, modern country artists in terms of, you know, like post rock and roll era, the most important country artist would be Merle, Dolly, uh, I'd throw in Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson. And I think in all of their cases, Dolly and Willie still with us, Johnny and Merle both gone, I don't see a lot of use of them as, as a resource mm. in current music. I'm particularly focused here when I say on what gets played on mainstream country radio. It's a slightly different case if we if we expand that out into more retro acts or to Americana acts. You know, I keep waiting for the Merle Haggard tribute albums to come out. Hmm. There have been a couple. Uh, one really good one was by uh, Bonnie Prince Billy. Not exactly a country artist, but that's an absolutely lovely uh, record. Just before Merle dies, the country singer Susie Boggess came out with an excellent Haggard tribute. This is part of what I wanted to update in the book as well, was that in both uh, the Bonnie Prince Billy and the Boggess case, uh, they are really drawing from the last half of Merle's career, songs from the 80s mostly. Mm. And so that's that's been one shift. When people do turn to his music now, uh, they are drawing from the stuff that he was recording in the 80s when he was already a legend. It tends to be poppier. It tends to be more focused on romance and broken hearts than the more class-related earlier music, right? For the most part, I'm, I would have to say I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed that uh, his music is not picked up and used more. I think it still has a lot of use left in it uh, if people want to update it. Uh, I keep waiting for, like, for example, the one that I'm kind of stunned has not done any significant Merle Haggard project is Sturgill Simpson. Hmm. Right in his wheelhouse, they became good friends near the end of Merle's life. Uh, they even wrote a song together, and Simpson has recorded it on his most recent bluegrass record. But beyond that, I'm sort of stunned that he hasn't played Haggard songs more in concert, hasn't put out a full-fledged tribute album. One more thing I'd add here is that when newer artists are turning to Haggard songs and recording them, uh, not in Merle's style, but in their own styles, their modern styles, uh, which is what has to happen if Merle's music is going to continue to be a resource. It's almost always women hmm. who have really been doing the turning lately. Uh, Miranda Lambert is the one that, you know, she has consistently sung Merle songs and Merle-associated songs in her concerts for years, even when he was alive, but she's continued to do that in the years since. She does a great version of Misery and Gin, for example. Tonight. group the Pistol Annies they did an excellent version of If We Make It Through December on their most recent Christmas album uh, Phoebe Bridgers also did that song recently uh, not exactly a country artist but Americana adjacent artist so I don't know I, I sort of am always expecting someone to um, come out with the big Merle tribute but that <laughs> hasn't happened yet Willie Nelson supposedly has one in the can huh. I think that would help a lot if he would put that record out and then talk it up while he still can he definitely still can because I, I came across his new record that just came out a couple of months ago and it's stunning. It is so good. Right. With the general public, what is your opinion on Merle? 
you know, has the appreciation and the opinion and perception of Merle changed in the five years or has he kind of got lost in the shuffle? When you mention those three, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, and Dolly Parton, I think Merle sits at the bottom of that to most people. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a completely fair assessment. I would note too, though, that, you know, Willie Nelson is sort of getting his flowers now, <laughs> as the expression goes, right? Uh, Jody Rosen, the critic and journalist, did an excellent long-form piece for New York Times Magazine on Nelson. And because Willie keeps putting out new records and they continue to be good. He- Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Continues to sort of stay in the conversation. Dolly is, you know, keeps putting out records or at least staying in the public eye with various business ventures and things like that. She got elected to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but I don't see people recording her music. And the same goes for Johnny Cash. Right. You know, that that's the test to me is not simply will somebody like mention, I like this person uh, growing up in an interview, but are they actually doing the work? It's how the tradition works. Right. Uh, Merle is the best example of this. In his own career, he resurrected Jimmy Rogers, the father of country music, by doing a tribute album to him and doing it in the sound of 1970, not trying to go back and make it sound like the 20s. He updated that sound to be used in the world that he was recording it in. And then later on, he did a Bob Wills tribute and he did an Elvis Presley tribute and he recorded a million Lefty Frizzell songs. And who's going to do that for Merle? 
who's going to do it for Willie or Dolly or Johnny? Hmm. We'll see. These things go in cycles. You can't predict the future, obviously. Uh, so some other people I should have mentioned that have recorded Merle stuff, they're not exactly country artists, but um, Robert Plant and Alison Krauss did a cover of his uh, Going Where the Lonely Go on their most recent record. Eli Paperboy Reed did an excellent Merle Haggard tribute album in a country soul style uh, that came out last year. Um, so there are things happening out there, but I don't know. Only time will tell is the biggest cliche in the history of the world, but there I am. listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with David Cantwell, the author of a couple of Merle Haggard books. The newly updated one is called The Running Kind, Listening to Merle Haggard. You have a fantastic YouTube channel dedicated to this. I wondered if you'd be interested in playing a little game and just give me something that pops into your mind when I mention these covers, you know, what you like about it or, or why it's special or... The ones that I've chosen, I chose because they're great, but I also chose it to represent how diverse they are. Are you game? Sure. Yes, definitely. All right. So this one is, this band always gets a little bit of uh, heat, in my opinion, unfairly. But Leonard Skinner, Honky Tonk Nighttime Man. Yeah, that's uh, that's a fantastic uh, recording. You know, I, I don't say this very often, but I kind of think I think Skinner's version is better than Merle's. Oh, boy. It certainly cooks more. It's it's interesting that Skinner has sort of been pegged by that one song, Sweet Home Alabama, right? And mostly negatively, I think. Uh, in the same way that Merle has been pegged mostly negatively by Oki from Muskogee mm -hmm. with uh, the doing it no favors fight inside of me that followed. So it's it's interesting that Van Zant, because they have that similarity, uh, Van Zant is such a Merle Haggard fan. Hmm. And I was so glad that they recorded that. He gets at the honky-tonk nighttime man. And, and it also illustrates the connection. And this is one of the things I expand upon more in the new version of the book. It gets on that connection between Merle and Southern rock. Merle's music is one of the sources for the outlaw country music that comes later, and but also for Southern rock. Hmm. He's a prime source. He was somebody who was already sort of making Southern rock and country rock in the late 60s before those things were entirely identified even as genres. Yeah, and that's on their, their final album, uh, sadly, Street Survivors. And I think Steve Gaines probably, it sounds to me like he probably had a lot to do with that song as well as Ronnie because he kind of changed the band. It would have been interesting to see where they went, but, you know, it didn't work. 
how about Elvis Costello, Tonight the Bottle Let Me Down, which is probably in my top two or three favorite Elvis records. Are you kidding? No, I love that record. You mean Tonight the Bottle or the, the album Almost Blue? Almost Blue, right. Wow. Uh, I I used to consider myself, you know, Elvis Costello was my guy, right? Mm. That was He was my favorite until, until I discovered George Jones through Elvis Costello and this album Almost Blue. I always really didn't like the Almost Blue album, even though it led me back to the country music I'd grown up with. I didn't think it was a very good record. I still don't think it's a very good record. It's interesting, though, because though I don't think it's very good as a country record, I do think it was a tremendously consequential album. So much of the of the roots rock that happens in the 1980s on college radio comes directly from that record. Interesting. He legitimized country music for so many people, including myself, I have to say. Uh, and then that gets us to the alternative country moment of the late 80s and early 90s, too. I think it all goes back to Almost Blue. As for the album itself, though, like I say, I've never been really impressed by it. I thought we thought it was odd. I think this would have fixed the record in my mind. He sought out Billy Sherrill, who was George Jones's producer, to produce the record. And they go to Nashville, and then they make a record that is not a Billy Sherrill record. Hmm. I wish Costello had gone down there and just done a Billy Sherrill record with Sherrill and Sherrill's studio musicians instead of trying to use the attractions. I think that would have been very, very interesting. That that would have been closer to how he treated his tribute projects later on, like when he works with uh, Burt Bacharach and things like that, He or when he works with The Roots. You know, all these other projects that Costello has had, he tends to kind of meet the collaborator on their terms, right. which I think is very interesting. Uh, he did that over and over again. But with this first time out with Cheryl, it's almost like he's doing the opposite. He's kind of pulling Cheryl in their rock direction a little bit. And it just doesn't work for me. My favorite part of the Tonight the Bottle Let Me Down, though, his cover of Merle's song on that is Steve Naive's uh, piano part on that is really excellent. Yeah, if memory serves, Billy Cheryl did a lot of uh, orchestration. Isn't that right? Sometimes. That's how he's sort of been pegged, is he put a lot of strings on stuff and a lot of backing vocals. But by the time he's working with Costello, his records with George Jones and others have mostly moved away from that. But of course, he still could have used it. Like, you know, Costello's used strings before. He That, that could have made the record awesome as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll agree with you that it's not a very good record. It's a great record. But anyway, I love that That's record. I love that distinction. That's a good <laughs> one of the ones that's probably covered the most is Today I Started Loving You Again. But I have to admit, I'd never heard the version that's on your YouTube playlist, which is by Bobby Blue Bland. Yeah. It's incredible. It is incredible. And that's a song that, as I say in the in the book, it's a song that it's it's a song that really can't be destroyed. It's sort of like it's just it's a mid-tempo ballad. And because singers tend to take it slow, it can be transformed into almost any genre. And it has been. There's that hard RB bluesy version of Bobby Blue Bland's, which, yeah, that's one of the very, very best versions of that song. The song's been recorded over a hundred times. Right the decades and consistently Eli Paperboy Reed does an excellent version of it. I don't know a bad version of it. There are some that are better than others, but they're all just really, really striking. I think it's a song that 
you know, Merle sort of stumbled across that in the late 60s, uh, wrote it when he and uh, Bonnie Owens were going through a tough time together, uh, his, his wife at the time. It sort of set him on a path to write all kinds of other similarly mid-tempo ballads that are some of his best songs ever, you know. Everybody's had the blues. Every fool has a rainbow. There's a lot. I, I'm not going to be able to pull them up out of my foggy brain at the moment. Mm -hmm. But he, he began to specialize in the, that particular kind of song. Right. Many of them have been covered, and they're just this lovely. But you're right that Bland's version of that. Bobby Bland, if people don't know his stuff, he's like top five singers of all time for me. Mm. And that's a particularly strong moment. His his classic recordings were in the you know early to mid 60s. This is a mid 70s recording. Uh, and it is him and all his powers. And he completely sort of reinvents the song with the horns and the groove. terrible time <laughs> well the other thing i noticed in doing some research is that there were a lot of soul covers of that song in particular there's one by betty swan which was really good and then i saw Excellent. that rufus thomas did one so you know it's interesting how that song which is so country and maybe the country politan sound i know that's not a great term but how that translates so well you know in the hands of these soul singers yeah it's been done by tons and tons of soul singers it's been done in a cajun style it's been done in a swamp rock style. It's been done traditional rock style, country rock style, heavy metal style. Hmm. Um, it's just super, super stuff. So are you a deadhead? No, I am not. <laughs> okay, well, everyone knows where this is going if they know me. But they did Mama Tried, and they first performed that in 1969. They recorded their version in 71. You know, I saw them quite a bit. I think they do a great version of that song. But more importantly, you know, I don't know if they get enough credit. They were really early in the game on this. If you look at that 69 for Merle, you know, to cover him, that's really early. Yeah. Um, no, I will second your love of their version of uh, Mama Tried. It's really first rate. You know, I'm not a deadhead, but I understand that that was kind of a staple of their sets for a long, 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 long time. But one of the first times they did it was at Woodstock. I don't know if people realize that it, the dead had a storm shortened set that Saturday night, I guess. And uh, it was in that set. There are all kinds of connections to Merle. Merle famously had his anthem before Rookie from Muskogee was Working Man Blues. And then, of course, they had Working Man's Dead. I don't think that's oh. a coincidence. Uh, they were big Haggard fans. And lots of rockers were in that late 60s moment before Okie and many of them afterward as well. Oh. They recognized a great songwriter who was writing about things that they 
you know, could get into the birds, Graham Parsons. Right. I think Dylan was paying attention at that point. Again, I don't like a lot of Ted, but I do like that American Beauty Working Man's Dead moment yeah. is pretty good. And uh, at some point after that, the Grateful Dead and the Beach Boys together do a version of Okie from Muskogee that is one of the best <laughs> covers of that that I've ever heard. Wow. It's a live version. Really remarkable. I always wonder, you know, because like Mike Love is surely singing it sincerely and earnestly. The Dead, I think, may be playing it with more irony. Right, right. And uh, which is how that song has gone. Different people embrace it in different ways, but everybody agrees that it's catchy as hell and a fun party starter. I don't think I know that one. I'll have to go back and, and listen to that one. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with David Cantwell, the author of a couple of Merle Haggard books. The newly updated one is called The Running Kind listening to Merle Haggard. You know, uh, in doing the research for this, you know, you talked about that kind of connection, you know, inherent or, or planned, whatever. And one of the ones that I found, probably my favorite musician of the last at least five years anyway, Jason Isbell. And uh, I found a live version of Sing Me Back Home. And it is amazing. Have you heard that one? Yes, I have. It is. Uh, you're right. It is amazing. Isabel, by the way, is one of those people like Sturgill Simpson that I sort of keep thinking, why don't they record more Haggard stuff? Mm. And this is this is one of the things, too, that I would have to sort of say about whether Haggard's work is going to continue to be relevant. Uh, we're, we're kind of in a moment where we should be, I think, uh, and Isabel has foregrounded all these kinds of issues in his own work. You know, we need to be recognizing artists of color in country music, and we need to be foregrounding women in country music. And maybe the time for a Merle Haggard revival is its not the moment, right? It's like, that's not what we need right now. We need people covering Charlie Pride or recognizing all of the little known black country acts who didn't ever even get on the radio because of the racism of, of the country music industry. Right. So I don't knock Isabel as much as I knock Simpson <laughs> <laughs> for that omission. But you are exactly right that that is an absolutely wonderful version of Sing Me Back Home. It's a song that I think scares a lot of people because it's so weighty. It has such gravitas. Definitely. It's such a great artistic achievement. And maybe this is a good way to, you know, sort of end this discussion is what I'm trying to do in the book, particularly even more so in this new version of the book, is to remind that Merle Haggard was an artist. I think a, a lot of times people sort of think, oh, that happened to him. He was in prison. So, he, you know, he's just writing down what, what happened to him in prison. And I... You know, I think, no, this is an example of, of his artistry. It was certainly inspired by things he observed in prison. But as I pointed out in the book as well, that first verse of the person who's about to be executed saying to the warden, take me to my guitar playing friend, take me to his cell. That is straight out of Pennies from Heaven, the uh, 1930s film starring Bing Crosby. We know Haggard was a huge Crosby fan and was a huge Pennies from Heaven fan because he recorded the song twice in his career. And I think that that probably is where that first verse comes from. Mm. It's not that someone came to his cell and asked him to sing a song. It's that he loved that movie and connected it to the things he had seen, like choirs coming in and singing for people. And it's those sorts of choices, the ability to have an imagination and to construct something and not just take dictation on your life uh, that I really am always trying to emphasize when we talk about Haggard's music. It's interesting, too, because the Isbell version is is really great. It is a very heavy song, as you mentioned, 
But, uh, you know, in doing a research on that, because I hadn't seen it, that was an encore where he was supposed to co-headline with Haggard, and Haggard died a few weeks before the show. So, Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It's just like a three-week difference between that show and then Haggard's death. And now if you go back and listen to it, it's, it's, it's a beautiful version. And, uh, and I heard him tell the war Just before he reached my cell Let my guitar play and friend do my You know, everyone should check out the channel. It's called Great Merle Haggard Covers by David Cantwell. It's on YouTube. It's a ton of fun. People could do this all day and night at parties, and you wouldn't run out of choices. Yeah, that's a list I keep adding to. Uh, but I will note about, I mean, you sort of pushed back a little earlier when you said that, look at all these great covers you have on this list about his legacy, but almost all of them are older artists, mm-hmm. right? They're not current artists, and they're certainly not current country stars of the radio variety. Right, right. And well, so I'm waiting for that to happen. <laughs> but you are you are so right that Haggard really began to be covered most intensely. This is one of the things I've added to the new edition of the book in 1968, when dozens of people latched on to country stars, but specifically latched on and just started covering all of his songs and having hits with them uh, themselves sometimes. Conway Twitty did, Charlie Pride did, Hank Jr. did. I think that list is around 50 or 60 songs now, and it'll be over 100 someday. Well, it's awesome. And uh, lastly, as everything changes, and you mentioned some of the things that you've explored in the book newly, and you know, the cover of your book changed also. And I love the first one. As you mentioned, it was maybe more templated, but the new one is really beautiful too. So I just wanted to congratulate both you and the designers who worked on it because I find it quite a visual fitting testimony to your update. The first one has the American flag where the stripes of the flag are like railroad tracks. That was, I love that one. I have a huge poster of that in my house here. And that was designed by Lindsay Starr. Uh, The new one, which is more of a formal portrait of Merle, was designed by Alex Camlin. And yeah, it's it's really, really good. They're both excellent versions. I I wouldn't call it an upgrade, but it probably is more appropriate for this new version of the book. Well, David Cantwell, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I hope the book does well. It's been a great conversation. And I think, you know, whichever book you buy, buy the new one, but whichever book you buy of David's on Merle Haggard, I think people would really, really learn a lot and also learn to appreciate his music. Well, I I second that. (laughs) Thank you so much. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 